Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Last week, we presented part two of my version of the legend of the wandering Jew, a man who was supposedly condemned to live until Jesus' return. I came across the legend of the wandering Jew in a master's program at the University of Maine some 30 years ago and decided to turn it into an audio production as a school project. If you go back to our show of December 31st, 2018, you'll see I was by no means the first to tell the tale. Over the past 2,000 years, hundreds, if not thousands of books, poems, songs, movies, and the like have referred to the story in various ways. Myself, I used it as a vehicle to explore end-time stories from various traditions. Anyway, today's show presents part three of the three-part story. If you missed parts one and two, I'd suggest you go to our past shows button and listen from the beginning. The 30-year-old cassette is not in perfect condition, and you'll notice a few glitches as we go along. Regardless, let's begin part three of The Wandering Jew. Like me, the Hopis believed there had been previous worlds, and that we were now in the fourth and last. More than that, though, their mythology had a wisdom and a symmetry that others seemed to lack. It was as if they'd drawn on ancient scientific knowledge or powerful psychic insights and mythologized them to preserve their basic truth. Hopi legend tells us of four worlds. In the first world, there was only the creator, Teowa. There was no beginning, no end, no time, no shape, no life. Only an infinite void that had its beginning and end, time, shape, and life in the mind of Teowa, the creator. Then the infinite conceived the finite, and Teowa created a nephew, Sotuknang, to make it manifest. From endless time, Sotuknang gathered that which was to be made into solid substance, water and air. Teowa approved and ordered Sotuknang to create life and its movement to complete the four parts of the universal plan. So Sotuknang went to the universe created for the first world and created his helper, Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman took earth, mixed it with her saliva, and molded it into twin beings. She then covered them with a cape made of the creative wisdom and sang the creation song over them. The two beings sat up and asked, Who are we? Why are we here? Spider-Woman named the twins and told them they were put here to keep this world in order for when life was put upon it. So the first twin... Pokwang Hoya traveled throughout the earth, solidifying the high places into great mountains. The lower reaches he made pliable enough to be used by the beings to come, who would call it their mother. The second twin, Polongahoya, sounded his call throughout the world, and all the vibratory centers along earth's axis resounded from pole to pole. The whole earth trembled, and the universe quivered in tune. Thus he made the whole world an instrument of sound. Everything was tuned to the sound of the Creator. When this was done, the twins were told to keep the world properly rotating. Po Kwang Hoya was sent to the North Pole and given the power to keep the world in a stable form of solidness. Polong Hoya was sent to the South Pole and given the power to keep the air in gentle, ordered movement and told to send out his call for good or warning through the vibratory centers of the Earth. Spider-Woman then created from the Earth everything that grows, all kinds of birds and animals and finally human beings. The first people understood that the earth was a living entity like themselves. She was their mother. They were made from her flesh. They suckled at her breast as Mother Earth and the Corn Mother. In their wisdom, they also knew their father in two aspects. He was the sun, and through that face, he was Teowa, their creator. 
These universal entities were their real parents, their human parents being but the instruments through which their power was made manifest. The first people understood the mystery of their parenthood and the nature of their humanity. They believed that the human body and the body of the earth were constructed in the same way. Through each ran an axis, the backbone, and along this axis were several vibratory centers which echoed the primordial sound of life throughout the universe, or sounded a warning if anything went wrong. One of these vibratory centers is located in the heart. The first world started downhill when Lava Hoya, the talker, appeared as a mockingbird named Mokni. The more he talked, the more he convinced people of the differences between them. Then came Katoya, in the form of a snake with a big head. The people became suspicious of one another, made false accusations, and finally began to fight one another. Yet even then there were a few people who still lived by the laws of creation. Sotuk Nang took these people and told them to follow a certain cloud by day and a certain star by night till they came to a big mound where the ant people lived. When they went down to live with the ant people, Teowa commanded Sotuk Nang to destroy the world, and he destroyed it with fire. He rained fire upon it and opened up the volcanoes. Fire came from above and below and all around until the earth, the waters, the air were all fire, and nothing was left except the people inside the womb of the earth. When what had been the first world cooled off, Sotuk Nang purified it and began to create the second world. He changed its form completely, putting land where the water was and water where the land had been. This second world was not so beautiful as the first, and the animals were wild and kept apart, but it was beautiful nevertheless. Problems in the second world began when people developed handicrafts, homes and villages, and began to barter and trade. People soon wanted more and more. The people began to quarrel and fight, and then wars between villages broke out. So again, Sotuk Nang led the people who'd kept faith with the Creator to the ant people, so they could hide with them in their underground world. This time, Sotuk Nang commanded the twins, Pokwanghoya and Palongahoya, to leave their posts at the axis of the world. As soon as they did so, the world teetered off balance, spun around crazily, and rolled over twice. Mountains plunged into the seas, seas inundated the land, and then the world froze into solid ice. That was the end of Takpa, the second world. Eventually, Sotuk Nang ordered the twins to return to the poles of the world's axis. The world began to warm again, and Sotuk Nang created the third world. In the third world, the people multiplied so rapidly that they created big cities, countries, a whole civilization. More and more they forgot the plan of creation and became involved in their own earthly plans. Under the leadership of the Bo clan, they began to use their creative power in another evil and destructive way. Some of them made a hide shield, and with their creative power made it fly through the air. On this, many of the people flew to a big city, attacked it, and returned so fast no one knew where they came from. Soon the people of many cities and countries were making shields and flying on them to attack one another. So corruption and war came to the third world as it had to the others. This time, Spider-Woman protected the chosen people by sealing them in hollow reeds, and so Tuknang destroyed the world with water. Waves higher than mountains rolled in upon the land and broke the continents asunder. The people sealed up in their hollow reeds were tossed by the seas. After a long time, they came to rest on a little piece of land that had been the top of one of their highest mountains. This was all that remained of the third world. The people sent out many kinds of birds to find suitable land but none could be found. 
Then Spider-Woman directed them to make round, flat boats of the reeds they had come in and crawl inside. After long travels, they finally came to the fourth world. When they emerged, Sotuk Nang told them, I have washed away even the footprints of your emergence. Down on the bottom of the seas lie all the proud cities, the flying shields, and the worldly treasures corrupted with evil, and those people who found no time to sing praises to the Creator from the tops of their hills. But the day will come if you preserve the memory and the meaning of your emergence, when these stepping stones will rise again to prove the truth you speak. And before he left, Sotuk Nang told the people, The name of this fourth world is Tuwakchi, world complete. You will find out why. It is not all beautiful and easy like the previous ones. It has height and depth, heat and cold, beauty and barrenness. It has everything for you to choose from. What you choose will determine if this time you can carry out the plan of creation on it, or whether it must in time be destroyed too. There is much more I could tell you of the Hopi, of their legends, migrations, clans, mystery plays, and history. But there is only time to tell you their prophecy of the end of this fourth world. The Hopis believe that World War III will be started by those people who first received the divine wisdom in the other old countries, India, China, and the Middle East. The war will be a spiritual conflict with material matters. Material matters will be destroyed by spiritual beings who will remain to create one world and one nation under one power, that of the Creator. They too believe this time is not far off. During the night of October 12, 1917, thousands of people began streaming into the field near Fatima. By morning, a heavy rain was falling on the almost 80,000 people gathered there. At about noon, the crowds could plainly see a column of blue smoke which appeared and disappeared three times near the children. While this was happening, the children gazed ecstatically at the lady who stood above the little tree. She again told the children how important it was for the world to pray and to ask forgiveness for sin. Then, as the sun came out from behind the clouds, the lady spread her hands, sending magnificent rays of light toward what appeared to be the sun. Lucia cried, Look, the sun! At that moment, the rain stopped and the clouds were pulled apart, revealing what one witness, Dr. Jose Maria Garrett, described as a disc with sharp rim and clear edge, luminous and lucent, but not painful to the eyes. The comparison of the sun with this disc of smoky silver does not seem to be apt. It had a clearer, more active and richer color, as changeable as the luster of a pearl. It was not round as the moon is. It did not have the same character or the same light. It seemed to be a burnished wheel cut from mother of pearl. As 80,000 people gazed in awe, the disk seemed to vibrate in the sky. Suddenly it appeared to spin on its axis like some monstrous pinwheel. Faster and faster it turned while fantastic streamers of light flashed from its rim across sky and earth, flooding the landscape with constantly changing colors of red, blue, violet, yellow, and white. As this was happening, the children later said they were witnessing something even more remarkable. Next to the lady, who was dressed in radiant white with a blue mantle, appeared Joseph with the infant Jesus, both clothed in red and blessing the world. The wild spinning of the cosmic wheel continued for four minutes, paused, and then began again. Twelve miles away, school children sang a hymn of praise as magnificent colors washed over their tiny village. The wheel stopped spinning a second time. Then it began again with increased ferocity until suddenly it seemed to be torn from the sky and to come crashing toward earth, sending out an intense heat and terrifying the people. Dr. Garrett later said, 
The sun, retaining its rotary motion, left the heavens and boldly advanced toward the earth, threatening for terrifying moments to squash us with its huge and fiery mass. Another witness recalled praying, Lord, please spare us. Do not burn us in the fire. Sure that this was the end of the world, many in the crowd threw themselves down, making acts of contrition and openly confessing their sins. Just when it seemed the sun was about to burn up the earth, the fiery disk stopped and retreated into the sky. As the shaken crowds rose from their knees, they discovered the field, which had been a sea of mud moments before, was now completely dry. In the Hopi legend, as well as the Christian, this world is destroyed when most of humanity forgets to praise the Creator. The faithful few are led to a safe place while the world is once again burned, washed, frozen, or shaken clean. Now, once again, we've learned how to manipulate materials and think we know the secrets of the universe. Destruction for this offense is a self-fulfilling prophecy we bring upon ourselves again and again and again. As Nostradamus told me, it's not inevitable, but it will happen. On this, both environmental scientists and prophecy agree. Who are these prophets? Heraclitus of Ephesus, Greek philosopher of the island, the final days being identified as the time soon after the Jews have returned to Israel. At this time, as written in Zechariah 14, the Lord declares, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. These prophecies are also contained within Ezekiel chapters 36, 37, 38, in Daniel 11, 12, 14, Joel 2 and 3, and Isaiah 23 and 24. In Ezekiel's prophecy, we find that a great invasion shall come from the north, and every man's hand will be against his own brother. This prophecy tells of God's intervention with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone, and seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them. Daniel prophesies that at the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at Israel, and the king of the north shall come against them like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. The prophecies of Joel deal with destruction before a future day of judgment and describe wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The description fits how the sun and moon would appear through atmospheric pollution from heavy bombardment or from burning oil wells. And in Isaiah, the windows from on high are opened and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. It shall fall and not rise again. The Lord maketh the earth empty and turneth it upside down. The book of Revelation also provides vivid descriptions of the approaching period of the apocalypse. It refers to the final battle of Armageddon, in which there will be an attacking army spouting fire, smoke, and brimstone. There are descriptions of modern weaponry, of the power to scorch men with fire, and that people were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Revelations also describes an earthquake such as was not seen since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And there's a passage in Zechariah 14 describing what sounds like nuclear war, which reads, Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes. There is what might be a forewarning of pollution contained in the book of Estrus of the Apocrypha, which tells that great and mighty clouds shall rise to destroy all the earth and its inhabitants, and they shall destroy cities and walls, mountains and hills, 
trees of the forest and grass of the meadows and their grain. No one shall be left to cultivate the earth or to sow it. And then there is the following from the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus told them, So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Lo, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The prophecy attributed to the medieval Irish monk St. Malachy, the abbot of Bangor, also confirms the time is at hand. The document offers a roster of future popes from the 12th century to the end of the world and predicts that the papacy will end with a pope called Peter around the year 2000. According to the prediction, John Paul II will be followed by Peter the Roman, the last pope. Then, as the prophecy continues, the city of the seven hills will be destroyed and the awful judge will judge his people. And it is not just the millennial number 2000 on the Gregorian calendar that has focused the attention of prophets of the time of the event. For example, Buddhist tradition places the end of the present world at 2,500 years from the birth of Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha, at which time the people will be redeemed by Maitreya, the future Buddha. Siddhartha lived 2,500 years ago. Hinduism calculates this age of humanity as the Yuga, the epic of Kali, the goddess of destruction, and this is the age now drawing to a close. Vishnu, who has already saved humanity on a number of occasions, has appeared as savior in the form of a fish, tortoise, boar, man, lion, dwarf, Rama, Krishna, and Buddha. He will soon appear as Kalki, a white horse, destined to destroy the world and take humanity to a different, higher plane. Could it be the white horse described in this passage from Revelation? And I looked and beheld a white horse, and he who sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Orthodox Judaism also predicts the imminent arrival of the Messiah. Their calendar, based on the seven days of creation, assigns a thousand years to each of the seven days. It measures time from the creation of Adam to the coming of the Savior, and they believe the event will occur at the time on the calendar equivalent to sundown on Friday, the beginning of their Sabbath. According to their calendar, sundown is now very close. Posters and billboards all over Israel proclaim that the time is at hand. What is the end of the world? For that matter, what is the world? Let me tell you a story from the Mahabharata. A long time ago, after the end of the world, there was only one man left alive. His name was Markandeya. All other living creatures had perished, and the world was nothing more than mud and water, a gray, cloudy, icy swamp. Markandeya walked and walked through this morass, but found no place to rest, no trace of life. He was old, exhausted, and filled with inexpressible sorrow. Suddenly, on impulse, he turned and saw a tree behind him. It was a fig tree, rising out of the marsh, and at the foot of the tree sat a beautiful, smiling child. Markandeya was stunned, breathless, and without understanding as to why and how the child was there. 
And the child said to him, I see you need rest. Come into my body. Mark and Dea suddenly cared nothing for his life. The child opened his mouth, and an irresistible wind rose up, sweeping the old man toward the mouth. Despite himself, he went in, just as he was, and dropped into the child's belly. The old man looked around, and there he saw streams, trees, herds of cattle and grazing sheep. He saw men working the fields, women carrying water, city streets, crowds, rivers. Yes, in the belly of the child he saw the earth, calm and beautiful. He saw the blue ocean and the limitless blue sky. Mark and Dea began to walk. He walked for more than a hundred years without reaching the end of the body. Then the wind rose up again, and he felt himself lifted upward. He came out through the same mouth and saw the child under the fig tree. The child looked at him with a smile and said, I hope you had a good rest. Several years ago, when I was first locked in this cell, I had a dream, and I knew this time that I would truly die. I began to wonder about the circumstances and the interconnection of myself to the world, would the whole earth feel the 20,000 volts surge through my body? Would it end in an instant, in minutes, in years? Would the executioner and I be frozen in time, me in the chair, his hand on the switch, the current in infinite alteration running through the earth and back to me? I began to grow obsessed with the executioner. If the world and I are one, then is he to be the Christ or the Antichrist? There were questions I had to ask him. Was death and judgment the same? Or would judgment come before or after or during the electrocution? Or would the electrocution be my judgment? Like Palongahoya rung amok, would vibration turn to chaos for all eternity? I beat on my bars and called the guard. I've got to talk to the warden, I said. The guard just laughed. You haven't got a prayer, he said. Write him a letter. He's a busy man. I wrote. I got no answer. I wrote again and then again. Still nothing. Then I had an idea. There's a priest who comes to death row once a week to hear confessions and give communion. I told him, I want to confess to the world in a way the world can understand. Please bring me a recorder and some tapes. He didn't understand. Like a public service announcement, I said in desperation, like Joel Brynner back from the grave to tell people not to smoke. What will you tell them, he asked. I'll tell them to pray. Prayer will make them one with the Creator. I'll tell them to love and not to sin. That's what I'll say. The priest was a tired man, full of his own pain as well as his clients, the terminally ill we called ourselves. I'll see what I can do, he said, and then he brought this recorder. That was how this began. The first tape I made was a short one to the governor. I have to meet with the executioner, I said. The warden was furious when he learned I'd gone over his head. He said there was no way the man who pulled the switch would be allowed to meet me beforehand. I tried everything I knew, exhausted months of my remaining time to find out who he was. Since I could not die until the end, I was sure my executioner had to be the executioner of us all. Christ or Antichrist, who was it to be? I befriended a guard who liked to play chess. He'd sit outside my cell with a table and a chess set. He'd tell me his moves, and I would tell him mine. One day he let slip that he knew the man who pulled the switch that he was a chess player, too. It was difficult for me to contain my excitement, but I did. I knew this would be the only chance I'd have. I conceived a plan. 
I started an offhand conversation with a guard about the symbolism of the game of chess. Surprisingly, my story seemed to entertain the guard. At last, I told him about the story of Bergman's movie, The Seventh Seal. I described in vivid detail how the knight played chess with death on the beach, delayed his death, and was winning, perhaps could have won. But death tricked him and made the knight confess his next move. Then ever so carefully, I planted the seed. Wouldn't it be amusing for the executioner and I to play a game of chess together? I peered through the tiny window in the door and knew the guard was hooked. It was just a matter of time. Three days later, I was waked by a bang on the door. It was the guard. Get up, he said. There's someone here who wants to play a game of chess. I struggled to my feet. I didn't need to play chess. I knew that all I needed was a glimpse of the man, a look in his eyes, and I'd have the answer to my fate. Christ or Antichrist, forgiveness or damnation, I looked through the tiny window. For just an instant, I thought I saw thirty birds adjusting themselves around a heart pierced with thorns. It was the Cymorg. It was me. It's late, and I'm running out of tape. My hope is to have this message smuggled out of prison by the priest. He's promised to give it to a friend on the outside, someone I know who will get it duplicated. Please, play this tape for anyone you can. Make copies. Pass it around. The world needs to hear the message. You see, this really is the end. And that's the end of my 30-year-old version of the story of the Wandering Jew. In the two minutes we have left, I thought I'd conclude with another End Times poem from Dr. Doggerel. Atomic destruction is not new to Earth. It's the end game technology always will birth. And the truth is, we've been there. We've done it before. Perhaps 10,000 years ago, nuclear war took place in prehistory in ages long past and hardly remembered. Since nuclear blast wiped out history's memory except in one place, the Mahabharata recorded the trace of nuclear explosion, the light brighter than sun, the flying machines that nuked everyone, and the horror that followed is described in full measure. The melting of flesh gives the reader no pleasure, and the animals, driven by burning and fear, plunged into the river, hoping to clear their skin of the radioactive disease that they knew would soon kill them if they could not ease the torment of nausea and blindness. Their death was certain, they saw, as they drew their last breath. The Mahabharata, that most ancient of texts, was written in India and clearly reflects that an earlier period of technology bloomed with power grids, weapons, and planes now entombed beneath man-made destruction, or perhaps washed away by earthquakes and floods from an intermediate day, the machinery and buildings all rusted and lost set mankind's hopes backward, immeasurable cost. If, we, if we'd if we been successful at keeping the peace back then, just imagine where we'd be. Increased by knowledge doubling on average each year, in peace, in prosperity, with nothing to fear. We'd now be on planets within wormhole reach. We'd be sunning ourselves on some man-made Mars beach, We'd be mature in our kindness. We'd have cured all disease. We'd be cultured and wise, deserts blooming with trees. Such promise and wisdom lost to nuclear war. As I said in beginning, we've been there before. Well, thanks for listening. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, 
Just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the Past Shows button. And for information about IANS, just go to their website at iands.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.